Yes, we're still on chart 12 for the last week. Let me begin by reading some of what John MacArthur writes in his preface for chapter 9 of Revelation. John MacArthur. Because our world is the theater where the glorious God-honoring story of redemption is played out, Satan and his demon hosts have attacked the human race, turning the earth into the main battleground in their cosmic war against God, the holy angels, and the elect. Satan launched his first assault in the Garden of Eden, where he successfully tempted Adam and Eve to disobey God. The disastrous consequences were that sin entered the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Romans 5.12 No nation has experienced more of Satan's assaults than Israel. He has always had a special hatred for God's chosen people, from whom is the Christ according to the flesh. Romans 9.5 From the beginning to the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, Satan fought with all his impotent fury against the Lord Jesus Christ. At the end of Jesus' ministry, quote, Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve, end quote, Luke 22.3, who then betrayed Christ into the hands of his murderers. Satan also attacks the church by bringing unbelievers into it, mixing in his tares among God's wheat, blinding the minds of unbelievers so that they reject the gospel, and seeking to overwhelm believers with temptation, persecution, and discouragement. God sovereignly allows and oversees all of Satan's assaults and fulfills his purposes in spite of them and through them. Satan is the servant of God. In the future, Satan will serve God's purpose by being permitted to launch another deadly assault against the human race. That attack will come at the sounding of the fifth trumpet, during the time of God's judgment in the Great Tribulation. For millennia, the heavens have declared God's glory. But in the future, they will declare His wrath. While the destruction caused by the first four trumpet judgments will be catastrophic, the remaining three will be far worse. We have, that was John MacArthur. We've cited the prophet Joel before to illustrate, as one heading in my Bible has it, God's terrible visitation during the end times. But in the second chapter of his prophecy, we have an explicit reference to the events of the fifth trumpet in chapter 9, even to the description of the beings inflicting the earth. Turn with me to Joel chapter 2. Joel 2, let me begin at verse 3. 
A fire consumes before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but a desolate wilderness behind them, and nothing at all escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses so they run. With a noise as of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire consuming the stubble, like a mighty people arranged for battle. Before them, the people are in anguish. All faces turn pale. They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like soldiers, and they each march in line nor do they deviate from their paths. They do not crowd each other. They march everyone in his path. When they burst through the defenses, they do not break ranks. They rush to the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. Before them, the earth quakes. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord utters His voice before His army. Surely His camp is very great. For strong is He who carries out His word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. And who can endure it? Even so, even with all of that, as we've noted at the end of chapter 9, of Revelation, the Lord God still invites people to repent, as Joel confirms. Look at verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting, weeping, and mourning. And rend your heart, not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. By my reckoning, the emergence of the locusts from the bottomless pit gives us the first appearance in the post-rapture eschaton of truly demonic beings. There's no way around it. Even if one believes they are real locusts, their appearance reveals them as locusts quite literally from hell. But indeed, from their description, their behavior, and their marching orders, we conclude that these are not insects at all. J.A. Seiss writes writes this, These horrible creatures have a certain degree of intelligence. Commands are addressed to them. They are able to distinguish between those who have the seal of the living God upon their foreheads and other people. They have a king whom they obey. Earthly locusts have no king, but these have a king over them. These are unnatural, but thinking, reasoning beings. They receive and obey their orders not to harm or destroy any foliage, not to do harm to anyone bearing the seal of God on their foreheads, and not to kill anyone. 
Furthermore, actual locusts do not have tails that sting men like the sting of a scorpion. The occasional commentator will state that these locusts have riders. A.J. Seiss, for one, mentions that. Uh, I've scoured the text, and I can find no reference to riders on these. Under the sixth trumpet, yes, it explicitly says they have riders, but not this one. All descriptions pertain to the beasts themselves. And all power and all instructions for the campaign are given and addressed to the locusts themselves. Not anyone mounted upon them. So we're left with a plague of supernatural beings or demons with an appearance and behavior so bizarre, so frightful, as to inhabit our worst nightmares. So let's now examine the appearance and nature of these beings paying close attention to what the text actually says. Verse 7 of chapter 9. Where's Revelation? Oh, there it is. The appearance of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. And on their heads appeared to be crowns like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. Eight times in his description of the locust, John uses the Greek os, H-O-S, translated like or as. It's important that we note that. This confirms that the apostle, for the benefit of readers of this revelation, is doing his best to paint a picture of thoroughly otherworldly, demonic design. Thus, he cannot describe the whole of each, for it could not be compared to anything in the history of man. No one at all has ever seen or even thought of creatures like these. Well, maybe in Hollywood they've thought of it, but... I know. The best job John can do is describe its component parts. He can say, this part of them is like something you're familiar with. But as for the whole thing, it's too bizarre and he, heck, he can't describe it. So the verse begins, the appearance of the locust was like horses prepared for battle. The nearest earthly being John can compare to the overall structure and look perhaps even size, he ended with a question mark, of these monsters is the horse. Here we may have the first clue that, they, that these are something more than just demon-sized insects. Look at a picture of an earthly locust I have. The word horse does not spring to mind. Funny thing. These were not just like horses, but like horses prepared for battle. A battle horse covered with stuff. Horses with a lot of stuff all over them, armored plates, etc. Typically for protection, but perhaps here for brutality. More fierce, more damaging. 
And the verse continues, And on their heads appeared to be crowns like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. Here again, we must not give in to the easy mistake of shaping the description into a more palatable or sensible image. It does not say that there were writers wearing crowns who were human beings because they had the face of a man. It doesn't say that. No, the pronouns there, T-H-E-I-R, and they, in this passage, always refer to the beasties. No writer is mentioned. Even on the heavenly righteous side of things, Excuse me. Even on the heavenly righteous side of things, created beings can have a bizarre, even hideous to our sensibilities description. Please turn back to chapter 4. Beyond the Trinity itself, This passage speaks of created beings closest to the throne. Probably, we might assume, the most holy of any created being in heaven. But listen to how they're described. Revelation 4, verses 6 to 8. Before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night saying, Holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now, my guess is that if any one of us met those creatures on the street, outside the environs of heaven, we'd be horrified. We'd run screaming from them. Just thinking about them. Ooh. but not in the precincts of heaven. To my mind, this plays a part in the resurrection to the acquisition of new bodies suitable for heaven. At the resurrection, or perhaps even before when at death our spirit is united with Christ prior to receiving our resurrection, but certainly at the resurrection when we're outfitted with tangible flesh suitable for a holy environment, just as the unregenerate are outfitted with flesh that will not be consumed in the lake of fire. And that new body just... I'm certainly not being dogmatic about this, but this is something that occurs to me. That new body for believers may certainly include a new perception. Not just different flesh, but a different mind, different perception. 
which allows us to recognize beauty where once in our corrupt earthly flesh we would have seen only ugliness. In our corrupt flesh, with our corrupt minds, we think of, we read that description, think, whoa, creepy. I don't want to look at that. But when we get there, when everything is new, thank God, everything will be new. And we look at that and say, well, that's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Maybe that'll be a gift of our new bodies, our new glorified bodies. Now, there appeared to be something the color of gold encircling. That's what the Greek stephanoi means. The heads of these creatures as before, in chapter 6, verse 2, less a crown of royalty than an honorific. It's what you'd get if when you ran the race. When you won at the Olympics, you'd get a crown, a wreath. <clears throat> Thus, it could be something as simple as a gold-colored band. It's just, the word means to go around. As to the faces, were they literally a human-like countenance? Or an arrangement that from a distance gave the impression of eyes and nose and a mouth, much as people refer to the man in the moon because of the way the craters are arranged. Hard to say. We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. Was John seeing this up close and personal? Where he could reach out and like like monk touch the antennae? Or, or was he seeing a sea of them a long ways away? We don't know. Now verse 8. It gets a little more weird. They had hair like the hair of women, and their teeth were like the teeth of lions. Sidebar. It's funny what the book of the Revelation does to otherwise sensible scholars. They just go wacko. It's amazing some of the things one reads. And I, I'm talking about scholars that I've consulted for many other studies. Hey, these are dependable guys. These are great. And then revel, they, they turn the page to Revelation and go wild. This is a modest example. It, it seems to send them off into la-la land. Take, for example, the old but perfectly respectable commentator Adam Clark. Old, 1800s who writes in reference to, quote, they had hair as the hair of women, he writes this, quote, No razor passes upon their flesh, their hair long and their beards unshaven, end quote. Really? Where does it say anything about beards? Not a word. He just assumes that if they don't cut their hair, they probably don't cut their face. So I don't know where he came up with that. Let's try very hard to stay with the text. What it says, not what it doesn't say. More than one commentator passes along the tidbit that this refers to the antennae of the locust. Long hair, antennae of the locust. Because, quote, there is said to be an Arabic proverb in which the antennae of locusts are compared to girls' hair. Vincent, 
to be kind, I don't see it. Two pointy things going up, looks like women's long hair. I just, I'm sorry. I, I, I've known a lot of women. I was a fashion photographer, okay? I've known a lot of women. I don't, never saw any with two things sticking up, and it said, oh, you have long hair. <clears throat> no matter how tall or long they are, they do not at all bring to mind the hair of women. It's, is it not possible that since he described them in the previous verse as like horses, that this refers to long flowing manes as some horses have? Or they are locusts with hair. We already know they're bizarre. And since horses' teeth are larger than those of lions, I wonder if this remark might have more to do with the manner in which the mouth and the teeth are used rather than their size. A, a lion could be more ferocious than a horse, but a horse has much larger teeth. Pretty sure. I've seen the teeth of lions, and I watch all creatures great and small, so I'm, I'm, I know this. Big. They take a big... Big file. Verse 9. I digress. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots, of many horses rushing to battle. As any properly outfitted war horse, these are equipped with breastplates like, don't forget that like, Breastplates of iron, which I take to mean a massive or heavy appearance. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. True iron, wouldn't that be too heavy on a horse? Wouldn't that, if it was heavy iron, it, pro it looks like iron. It's like it, as iron. And supporting the view that these are some sort of locust, John points out that they have wings. And their sound was like the sound of chariots of many horses rushing to battle. Just as the prophet Joel said in chapter 2, verses 4 to 5, their appearance is like the appearance of horses. And like war horses, so they run with a noise as of chariots. They leap on the tops of the mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire consuming the stubble, like a mighty people arranged for battle. Now, note, we need, to, we need to flesh out this Joel reference. Joel's text in the second chapter is a now, net, now not yet prophecy. And the now is even twofold. First off, he's drawing his imagery from a real plague of locusts on Judah that in his time happened recently. So he's using that imagery to draw from. But then the other now is the Assyrian army coming at Judah. So he's, he's seeing the Assyrians come at Judah, and he's saying, boy, that's like the plague of locusts that we just, we just experienced, real locusts. So those are the two nows. And, of course, the not yet is the eschatological setting of our study. Now, verse 10. 
They have tails like scorpions and stings. And in their tails is their power to hurt men for five months. We will see that under the sixth trumpet, the lethality of those beasts, again horses, this time with riders, will be, quote, by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which proceeded out of their mouths, end quote. In other words, in the sixth trumpet, the horses will kill by what comes out of their mouth. They'll have stinging tails as well, but only to harm. And that's all that these beings, these beasts can do, harm. Here under the fifth trumpet, the stinging tails will be the instrument, the body part that inflicts the misery and torment during the five-month period without any killing. Verse 11, see how fast he's moving. They have as king over them the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon. And in the Greek, he has the name Apolluon. Proverbs tells us, Proverbs 30, verse 27, The locusts have no king, yet all of them go out in ranks. These locusts, however, have a king over them. Curiously, John gives his name in both Greek and Hebrew, perhaps to indicate that his administration, his work, his impact, his effect will be on both Gentile and Jew. In the Greek, his name is Apolluon, and in the Hebrew, Abaddon. The Hebrew means place of destruction, but it's then personified. So if your version doesn't say Apolluon, but has destruction or destroyer, in most instances it'll still be capitalized because it's personalized. The Hebrew, the Greek means destroyer. So the word, two words essentially mean the same. The Hebrew version, Abaddon, has a pedigree in the Old Testament literature. Turn please to Job chapter 26. Job 26, let's read verses 5 to 6. The dead tremble under the waters and their inhabitants. Sheol is naked before God, and Abaddon has no covering. God sees everything, even into hell. The NIVs and the King James versions use destruction as a proper noun in place of Abaddon, but it's capitalized. The, the point of that passage in Job is to confirm God's sovereignty over even the underworld. Nothing, not even there, is hidden from his sight or is outside his rule. It's real easy, it's real easy in this study to forget 
that none of this is happening without God's approval. He is the orchestrator. He's the one doing it. And or Christ, as we've seen. They're, in places, they're almost interchangeable. Now turn to Psalms, Psalm 88. The word is used several more times in Job, in Psalms, and Proverbs. Psalm 88, verses 10 to 12. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave, or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness, or your righteousness in the land of the forgetfulness? You left out Salah, but I'll let it go. I'll let it go. I won't hold it against you. I have concluded that the fallen angel handed the key who opens its gates to release the horde of locusts is almost certainly Satan, and that the angel of the abyss, the king of the locusts, and anyone else in the pit is an archangel of Satan, one of his archons, his rulers. In the message today, we spoke of Michael, an archangel. Well, Satan has his archangels too. He has his higher-ups that are beneath him. The word and name destroyer stands in marked contrast to its opposite, Christ Jesus, who is the Savior. Jesus saves. Satan and his minions destroy Finally, verse 12. The first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still coming after these things. Back at the end of chapter 8, after the narrative for the first four trumpets, an eagle flying overhead offers a preview of things to come. Let's... Let's look at that once again. Revelation 8, verse 13. Then I looked, and I heard an angel flying in mid-heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. When Jesus in Matthew 23 repeatedly exclaimed in one of my favorite passages in the New Testament, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees! Hypocrites! He was either or both expressing grief over or denouncing their behavior and philosophies. Here the same word, Uway declares a statement of empirical fact. Distress will come upon you three times. Verse 12 in chapter 9 announces that the first woe, the fifth trumpet, is now behind us. At least it's execution. We're not 
clear on exactly how long it runs. But there are two more woes waiting in the wings. Those will be the sixth trumpet and the seventh. The seventh of which encompasses all the bowls of wrath. In musical terms, we're in the middle of a crescendo. It's getting worse, louder, uglier. The bowls of wrath will bring in the climax. In Revelation eleven fourteen, a similar announcement is made that, quote, the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. You can just hear it. <laughs> you don't want to be there. It's coming quickly. It's, coming to, it's a freight train coming down the road. These woes, indeed, are woeful. Not just with their suffering, torment, and death, but in the disruption of the very nature of the tripartite intersection of God and man and Satan. Now, think about this for a minute. Believers at the time of the rapture Will not, be in, will not be experiencing this firsthand. And we can all say, Amen. But just imagine for a moment that you are someone left on earth after that dramatic moment. Set aside your spiritual condition. We're not really talking about that in this. But obviously, if you're still around, if you were before the rapture and you're after the rapture, okay. But let's just take it. You're someone who lived through the things the way they used to be and are now living through the changes taking place during the subsequent seven years of the tribulation. Before, before the rapture, before the tribulation, there was... God in His heaven and Satan somewhere below with man in the middle. As someone dwelling on earth, you perceive in an admittedly simplistic sense God as goodness and love. He's a nice guy. And you perceive Satan as evil and hate. But for the most part, this is all academic to you. Both of these forces, good and evil, are extraneous to your daily life. More philosophical than pragmatic. More thought experiment than having any practical application to your existence. You're just living one day to the next. If pressed, you can imagine these two as actual living beings, but they're so far distant, so amorphous to your senses that neither occupy much space or time in your life. That's church stuff. As the period of the tribulation, which of course you do not know by that name, begins and proceeds, things on earth get, begin to get a little uncomfortable. 
Life becomes increasingly a struggle with wars, food shortages, peculiar atmospheric effects, and cataclysmic upheavals on the earth. An individual in the military political sphere is making himself known, gathering supporters. Soon he's taken center stage, not just in one nation, but in all. He seems to have all the right answers for all the wrongs in the world. People look up to him. They're glad he's around. Then after another series of strange insults to the natural world, you begin to realize that God in heaven may be something more complicated than just goodness and love. It's apparent that most of the bad things happening on earth are being instigated from above. From God, or at least His domain in the heavens. The media are flooding the airwaves and the internet with blistering reports all about the wrath of God to come, ancient prophecies fulfilled, and get out while you can. It would seem that your comfortable God of love has become a God of hate. Then one terrible day you awake to skies filled with bizarre creatures released from the bowels of hell itself. Horses that fly, or or are they locusts with the faces of men? Or scorpions with long flowing hair? What are these? They cannot be defined, but fill the air like, like living pollution. Darting here and there, anywhere they please, their long tails flashing like convulsive snakes, stinging painfully every person they touch. In fact, cities and countryside alike are littered with people writhing on the ground in agony, wishing only to die. Please, kill me, anyone, please, I can't stand it. But no one is permitted to die. And no one is permitted to kill. No one needs to be told these are demons. Led by demons. Created by the one demon worst of all. Satan. His mask has been removed. And we now see him and his angels for what they truly are. Destroyers. Let me close with what John Walvoord writes. Such is the character of Satan and those who affiliate with him as wicked or fallen angels. Though in the modern world, Satan often appears as an angel of light in the role of that which is good and religious. Here the mask is stripped away and evil is seen in its true character. Satan and the demons are seen as the destroyers of the souls of men and as those who can only bring affliction. When divine restraint is released, as in this instance, remember who handed the key. The true character of the evil one is manifested immediately. Desperate indeed will be the situation of those who know not Christ in these tragic hours 
preceding His return to judge the wicked world. The tribulation period unmasks human wickedness and also demonstrates the true character of Satan. In our modern day, while Satan is still restricted, it is easy to forget the great conflict which is raging between the forces of God and the forces of Satan. Referring to Ephesians 6.12. In the great tribulation, and especially in the time of the fifth trumpet, with the release of the confined demons, the full character of Satan will be starkly manifested. For the first time in history, all those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior will come under demonic possession and affliction. What is true in that hour is also true in some measure today, for there is no deliverance from the power of Satan nor from his affliction apart from salvation in Christ and the delivering power of God. We've got just a couple of minutes. Does anyone have anything they'd like to share? Okay. Our Father God, we are sobered. We are humbled by this picture of what you will be doing in the final days. You are Lord, you are God. Jesus Christ is King. It is you, God of love, who sets this in motion. It's hard for us to digest that. Yet at the same time, Father, we have cried out to you for millennia. Please, punish them. Don't let them get away with this. This is where it happens. You do not let them get away with it. It will be done in your time according to your will, not ours. And we bow before that. We acknowledge it. It's what it means to call you Lord. You will continue on expunging all evil from the earth until the day when Christ takes His throne. There will be a new heaven and new earth. And it will be wonderful. We thank you for being God and we thank you for letting us bow before you as our God. 
And we thank You for Your Word that tells us all about it. Let our lives be changed for good because of what You are telling us here. In the name of Jesus, Amen.